you have your Bibles, we'd like to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 12. If you don't have one with you, we have provided one for you. So if you're a guest and you don't own a, a Bible, or if you'd like a new one, uh, in the chair rack in front of you, there's one there for you. And we'd like to give that to you if you don't have one. But right now, we'd love for you to just follow along. And uh, we're going to be on page 947, or which is Romans 12. And we're going to begin reading. The bulletin says verses 1 to 8. And as Brian and I were working through getting ready for this week, we went, uh, there's no way we're going to get through verse 2. We're going to try to get through verse 3, but we're definitely not going to get through verse 8. So what we've tried to do in this whole series is pick a couple of themes out of each of the 12, uh, 16 chapters in Romans. And so uh, this week we want to take you into uh, an understanding of what it means to believe that proceeds into doing. Something that is active, something that, that changes the way we operate because of what we believe. So I invite you to read along. We're going to be kind of taking you back to give you a little bit of background information because as you'll see in verse 1, he says, I I urge you, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore. What's the therefore there? So we want to understand what that is. And so as we read, listen and prepare your heart for what God has in store to teach us this morning about this incredibly important part of his word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we'll stop right there. I think we've got a nice mouthful to be able to handle with that little portion. So let's pray. Father, instruct us because we are a people in need of being instructed. Lord, we've just prayed for educators, uh, for teachers of our children, and now, Lord, we become your children and ask that by your Spirit you teach us. Father, I pray for this teacher standing here with a Bible in my hand that I do nothing or say nothing that would get in the way of the lesson of truth that you want to pour into our hearts this morning. For Christ's sake, amen. Friday, we had the opportunity as a nation to remember. Fourteen years ago, do you remember where you were when you heard the news of the, of the jet liners crashing into the, the trade towers or into the Pentagon or into the fields of Pennsylvania? Most of us, that's indelibly printed into our brains. That's one of those things we'll never forget. Like those of us older than us, the Kennedy assassination, we remember that. We remember various points in history as they're embedded in our brains. And so we look back on that and think, what kind of indoctrination and what kind of brainwashing perhaps, or what kind of worldview is present in a person that says, let me take a plane load of people and ram it into a building full of people and see how many people I can kill. What, what's, what's that mindset? You have to believe something. I mean, really believe something to do something like that. Now, you back up 81 years ago now, and there was another terrorist slash dictator uh, in Germany by the name of Adolf Hitler. And he was shaped by indoctrination as well things that he had believed and had written on, and and Mein Kampf explained his ideologies and where he was going and how he was going to to lead any way he could to establish his uh, imprint, his ideology on the world through his position. And he worked himself up through power. And he required 
the, uh, the people in the Wehrmacht, the, the armies, the allied armies of all of Germany, not, not just the infantry and the armed forces on the ground, but the, but the Navy and the Air Force, all were together. And they had to be able to say this pledge. And this is what they would have to say. I swear by God, which is fascinating, isn't it? I swear by God this sacred oath that I shall render unconditional obedience to Adolf Hitler. Okay, um, there's so much wrong with that. But anyway, I swear by God, this sacred oath, that I shall render unconditional obedience to Adolf Hitler, the leader of the German Empire, supreme commander of the armed forces, and that I shall at all times be prepared as a brave soldier to give my life for this oath. Interesting. So, September 11, we've got ideologists who are shaped by their beliefs, who are so firm in their convictions. They know what they know, and they're going to do what they do because of what they believe. Nazi Germany, people who are so shaped by their ideologies. Now, this doesn't include the, the conscription that went on and, and people who were just normal, non-Nazi Germanies who were thrust into this maelstrom, but, but there was a machine here. The issue is you do what you do. Why? Because you believe what you believe. Now, the question this text brings to us this morning is whether or not we as Christians are exempt from that reality. Do we do what we do because we believe what we believe? Or do we say what we believe and then we do something that's very different from what we say we believe? Good question. That's why we're going to look at this this morning. True belief always proceeds into action. Behind the evil of the terrorists that attacked the towers and Pentagon and stuff, and behind the evils of Adolf Hitler, there stood this wall of belief. What is the wall of belief behind what we believe? How do we process this? And so that's where we come this morning to make a transition. In the scheme of, of Romans, <clears throat> there is a process that Paul is working through. He goes through the first several chapters of this book outlining, here's what we believe. Here's what we know to be true. Here's the theology of God. Here's how you know Christ. Here's what it means to deal with our lives as they are relative to the reality of what God wants them to be. And he walks through this whole process, and he leads us to the conclusion that since I owe all that I am to the grace of Jesus Christ... I will give all that I am to do whatever he asks to place his will above my own. I'm willing to not just die for Christ. I'm willing to live now for Christ. And that's the explanation that he's given us. He's he's laying this thing out for us. And so as we look at this passage this morning, we want to go back and particularly if you're just coming into the fall and you haven't been a part of the series since January, you may be thinking, well, I'm not sure where the therefore came from. But here's, here's the background here. Paul is not saying, uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, based on the last verse of chapter 11, although he could do that. But what he's appealing to is all 11 chapters that he's helped us understand. And the, the principle that he's been teaching all this time is that by faith, we are saved by him. It's, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. He's what he's been teaching. So we believe God, and because we believe God and his promises, we are counted as righteous In God's eyes, the righteousness of Christ becomes our righteousness because the death that he died 
we died with him by faith. And the resurrection to new life that he has given to us, we are raised up with him and made alive together with Christ. And so he says, this is what we believe. Now, in terms of breaking this down and trying to give you a framework for all this, it's helpful to kind of see it in segments and kind of see how we got to where we are. And so we just take a minute and back up and do that. Uh, starting in verse, chapters 1 to 3, and if you've got a notepad, just kind of track it down so you see I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, chapters 1 to 3, what he's basically saying in the teaching that he's giving is that God's holiness is displayed in condemning sin. Because God is holy, he cannot abide with sin. So God's holiness in condemning sin is in the first three chapters. Then chapters 4 and 5, he uses uh, Abraham as an illustration, and other things as an illustration. He says, I'm, I'm going to teach you in this section God's grace in justifying sinners. How will he do that? Well, you will believe God and it will be counted to you as righteousness. Well, that sounds simplistic, but yes, no. But God demonstrated his own love toward us. And while we're still sinners... Christ died for us in chapter 5. So we get a picture. Yes, this is what's happening. God's grace is demonstrated in 4 and 5 in justifying sinners. In chapter 6 to 8, it's just the God that you have trusted is now in the process of making you like Jesus. He is making you holy, and, and therefore he has given the power of heaven to work in your lives to sanctify, which is a, a fancy word, which means to make you holy. He is putting the power of the resurrection at work in your lives to make you holy. Okay, we get this. So we get to the end of chapter 8, and we're going, okay, I know about sin. I understand that, and, and God's holiness is contradicted against sin. We need a Savior. And so he says in chapters 4 and 5, here is a Savior, Jesus. Believe on him, and you'll be saved, and you'll have eternal life. Chapter 6 to 8, as a new believer, your life will be transformed by the power of God, and you will be in holiness made like Christ. That is a part of what God does. And then the question that has arisen in the process from chapters 9 to 11 is, well, what about God's trustworthiness? Can he be trusted since there is a significant number of his coming up? People have not believed yet. So chapters 9 to 11, he says God's sovereignty is on display. He will keep his promises to all of his people, to Jews and to Gentiles, to everyone who trusts in his name. There will be salvation. God's sovereignty is on display there in saving Jews and Greeks. So that's the background. Now, that's what Paul said. This is what we believe. These are the truths that we can stake our lives on. These are absolutes that if you want to call it indoctrination, fine. If you want to call it information, transforming your life, fine. Whatever you want to call it, it is the truth that we believe. This is what the gospel is of Christ. Therefore, Paul says, I appeal to you, do what you believe. And chapter 12 begins a series of chapters in which he explains to us how to practice what we believe. How do we do that? And so this is where we come to, to chapter 12. And, and so he says, by faith, we're saved by him. We believe God, we're counted as righteous. Now by faith, we serve God. And we believe God now and act as his transformed servants. This is what we're going to be doing. So Paul begins now, chapter 12. Here's what we're doing. I agree, appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What is a living sacrifice? You're still alive. He said, now the problem with living sacrifices is what? They keep crawling off the altar, right? And that's what we have a tendency to do. Uh, we, we have made a pledge. We've made a commitment. We've made a, a statement of our devotion. We will indeed serve Christ. We will live for him. 
That will be our Lord and Savior. We will give our lives to him. I swear by God, a sacred oath that I offer unconditional obedience, not to Adolf, but to Jesus. Okay, I, I believe that. Now, so what I want to do is recognize that I am giving my life, presenting my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good, what's acceptable, what's perfect. So, a couple of different divisions as to how we look at these verses. One has to do with the simple thing that when God changes our lives, what does he do? He transforms us so that we become like Jesus. That's what he's doing. He is changing us from the inside out and, and making us over like Christ. And he says, now, if that's going to happen, uh, three things are going to have to take place. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So what are those things that have to take place? Well, the first he starts off by teaching us in the scriptures, as Paul has written to other churches, is that one of the first things that has to take place is that we've got to let the old things pass away, really. Not just verbally, well, I believe that they ought to pass away. No, that's just what you believe. What will you do? You will let those things pass away by putting them aside. You you will do that. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, he says, In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with, with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. So you've got to put aside the old, you've got to put on the new, and you're going to have to be transformed by the living God who has done these things for you in Christ so that you are being made over into the image of Christ. Now, he says what you're going to be putting aside are three things that are absolutely essential for you to get rid of. Because if you don't get rid of these things, you're going to continually go back to your default position. You're going to fall back to what you once were before Christ. He says, now, we understand this. This is human nature. It is the sinful human nature, though. And therefore, you're going to have to put that aside. So he begins by talking about the futility of our lives, the way they used to be lived. He says, here's the, here's the picture in First uh, Peter Peter talks about this. He says, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile way of life you inherited from your forefathers. So we all have this. It's a futile way of life. It doesn't lead anywhere. It's a, it's a bunch of dead ends. It's, it's nobody going anywhere except into brick walls. He says, so you were created for eternity. You were created for the glory of God. And therefore, if you're pursuing any kind of focus or priority in life that is not leading toward an eternal end or for the glory of God, you're heading down the wrong path and you're going to never find satisfaction doing that because you were created for something and if you're investing yourself in living for something else, you're never going to be fulfilled. Does that explain a lot in our culture? People running from one campfire to the next to get warm on a rain and cold day, God's going, there's only one shelter. You're running all over the place trying to find it, and you will never find it. The, the world's way, he says, is a futile way of living. Don't go there. Just don't go there. Put that off. Lay aside the way that the world teaches you, the way that your old nature teaches you. Get rid of that because it is going to run into dead end after dead end, into pothole, into sinkhole, and everything. You're going to have trouble. It's a futile way of life. Secondly, he says, not just putting aside the futile way of life, you're not going to find satisfaction going that way. But, but there's a futile 
mind involved here. That's what he says in, in verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? Because that mind is a futile mind. It, it's, it doesn't deal properly. Back in the Ephesians passage where Paul again is talking about the same thing. He says, I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. What? They're, they're being darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them because of the hardness of their hearts. They haven't believed God, and therefore, because they haven't believed God, there's this veil of darkness keeping them from being able to see what's real, and, and they're accepting all kinds of alternatives as to what's real, and their minds are telling them lies about what the reality is in the world, and they're buying it, and it leads to the futility of life. So the futility of mind has got to be laid aside, so the futility of life will be able to be laid aside. Which leads to the third thing. He says this futility of mind is going to lead you to an inescapable pattern of thinking. So there's a futility of thinking. The paths and the tracks that our minds are naturally inclined to go down are never going to lead to satisfaction and fulfillment. Just won't get there. So in this passage, uh, Paul is saying, you're going to have to renew your mind in Christ by putting aside the old. Now, back in chapter 1, as Paul is describing one of the implications of sin, verse 21, he says it this way, even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks, but, but actually became, what's this word again? Futile. They became futile in their speculations, the way they thought about things. And, and their foolish heart was darkened. So he says, apart from the Lord, our thinking and our considerations and our speculations amount to nothing. They plunge us further and further into darkness, all because of unbelief. He says, this is the pattern that we are born with. And so people keep trying to figure out for themselves those things which can only be known in relationship to the God who created them. That's how it works. And so Paul says, okay, so here's one of the three things that's got to happen for you to become like Christ. You've got to, to lay aside that stuff. What are the lies that we buy? There are all kinds of really good books out there uh, that, that kind of expose that reality. What are the lies that you believe that you live by? And, and they may have all kinds of implications. They may have all kinds of considerations and speculations about why we think the way we do and the way we believe which shape the things that we actually take action on. Okay, so he says, let's get rid of that thinking. Now, once you get rid of that, laid aside that old garment of, of futility of, of life and futility of, of mind and futility of the way you think. He said, what are you going to do? Be, just naked? No. He says, you are to put on something. You, you put that off. You, that's, that's dirty. That's, that's stained. That's, that's gross. You don't want that. God offers you his robes of righteousness. He offers you to put on Christ, as we'll see in Romans 13. You're going to put Christ on. So when you put on new things, you become a new creature. The problem is not just getting rid of the old. It's putting on something totally different and, and beginning to think differently and recognize that, that we worship differently and that we, we act morally and ethically differently once we've put on this new life in Christ. Now, I, I'm really glad that this passage shows up on a day when we have a bunch of teachers here. Because you are shapers of minds. Right? Did you think of that way? Some of you, of course, I thought about that way. I went to school. That's what they taught us. You're shapers of young minds. 
what is the shape that you have in mind? What, what kind of shape are you directing? Well, I want them to have their mind shaped toward mathematics. Well, good. Unless you're an English teacher. But I mean, if it's good that, that you have in mind something. But there's a bigger picture here. He's saying uh, we are to be shapers of minds that are able to think Christianly. What does that mean? Harry Blemeyer said it this way. He wrote a book called The Christian Mind. And it's, it's rather a strong indictment against the culture and specifically the culture of those who profess faith in Christ. Because if we believe chapters 1 to 11 of Romans, something ought to be radically different by the time we get to chapter 12. By the renewing of our minds, something ought to have changed. So here's what Blemeyer says. He says, there is no longer a Christian mind. Harry, be gentle. We're, we're, we're kind of tender here. Be gentle with us. No, he said, there's no longer a Christian mind. There is still, of course, a Christian ethic. There's a Christian practice. There's a, even a Christian spirituality. But as a thinking being, the modern Christian has succumbed to secularization. He accepts religion its morality, its worship, its spiritual culture. But he rejects this, this religious view of life, the view which sets all earthly issues within the context of the eternal, the view which relates all human problems, social, political, cultural, to the doctrinal foundations of the Christian faith, the view from which he sees all things here below in terms of God's supremacy, in terms of transitoriness, in terms of heaven, in terms of hell. No, the, the mental secularization of Christians means that nowadays we meet only as worshiping beings and as moral beings, but not as thinking beings. Ouch. Shall we just fire Harry Lemires and just say, we're not reading anything else by you because you're really kind of digging here. Well, is there any truth to what he's saying? Are, are we worshiping beings? Yeah, we, we're committed the devotional life, we, we're, not, we're not backing off on that at all. We, we know that we come together, we, we pray, we meditate, we read devotionally, we develop our spiritual sensitivities. Uh, all that's applauded and encouraged, and, and we're all over that as, as worshiping beings. As moral beings, ethical beings, it starts to disintegrate around the edges a little bit. We're basically, by and large, ethically, morally, sort of, kind of, following the Christian track. But it gets fuzzy around the edges because we're worshiping beings kind of moral beings, but not thinking beings. We think we can believe certain things and it will not impact our behaviors. Uh, we're fooling ourselves. And so he says, no, we, we need to be thinking beings as well. Our problem usually lies with the fact that we allow nothing of the new life in Christ to reach our minds and transform the way we think about things. And therefore, we make decisions based on our secular influences instead of the biblical truth of a transformed life in Christ. That's an indictment against it. We, we need to understand that. So I'm amazed at how often we Christians don't want to think about things. We just want people to tell us what to think. What do you think about R-rated movies? What do you think about Beth Moore teaching over there and doing that? What do you think about this thing over there happening and that? What do you think about the political processes right now? What do you think? Tell me how I'm supposed to think about this stuff. Tell me how I'm supposed to think about 
about homosexuality. Tell me what I'm supposed to think about this woman in Kentucky going to jail for a family. Tell me what I'm supposed, how am I supposed to think about this stuff? Just tell me and then I'll, I'll toe the party line. Why don't you think about it within the context of your faith in Christ? Why don't we think about it? This is what he's saying. He said, you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you begin to process life with a mind of Christ. Glorious thought that that is. We are given the opportunity to not have to be dictated to by pastors, priests, or councils. We have access to the Word of God and to centuries of sound biblical theology, and we have access to a guy like the Apostle Paul in the Scriptures and all that he refers to in the Word of God to instruct us in the things of God so that we might think rightly. Don't let people tell you how you're supposed to think and how you're supposed to, well, I've heard this and I've heard that. Well, have you checked it out? Have you become an Acts 17 believer? Like verse 11, it says, The Bereans were more noble-minded than those at Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if this stuff was true. May we be surrounded by friends like that who are willing to search the Scriptures and say, Okay, I'm getting ready to do this. Is this right or wrong? Is this good or bad? Is this eternally significant or is this detrimental is this lending more toward the life of heaven on earth or is this bringing a part of hell out of the pit to the planet how do i think about these things you be transformed by the renewing of your mind what paul says i've told you i appeal to you brothers by the mercies of god by all that we have said therefore This is how we're to live. You need to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Why am I supposed to do that? You've got to think. That's how you've got to do that. You've got to think Christianly. You've got to open up your heart and let the new mind that is in you be the mind of Christ. Well, okay, so we we lay aside the old ways of thinking, the old patterns of doing things. We, We put on the new mind, the new Christ, and we dress ourselves up in the robes of righteousness and we allow the mind of Christ to begin to direct our steps. And then what happens? Then in Christ-likeness, we must grow. We become like our Savior. First John 3 says, Beloved, it, it's not yet appeared as to what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we'll be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. That's our, that's our goal. That's the target that we would be transformed. Well, how does that growth take place? Well, the, the three different words that show up in the English language that have roots in the Greek are, are helpful for us because in Galatians, Paul talks about Christ being formed in you. Key word in all this is formed. Christ is being formed in you. His life, his mind, his ethics, his morals, his worship, everything about Jesus is being formed in you. Okay, got that? So then Romans 8 says in verse 28 that, that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ so that that Christ being formed in me is now shaping some things about me. The word conformed, in, in actually verse 29, uh, this whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to his image. So he says, this is that interchange of nature that works its way out into our outward life. That, that's what idea here is in verse 29 of Romans 8. So this is a process. You are having Christ formed in you. You're being conformed to his image so that the inner life of Christ is being manifest in an outward manifestation of new life in you. And you come here to this passage and he says, now uh, you're to be no longer conformed 
to this world, but you're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ. I love the consistency. Don't you love it? I mean, just seeing what he's doing. He said, here's what we believe. Chapters 1 to 11. Here's this what we believe. Now, therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices so that we can get toward the spiritual service source, and you're going to have to have a transformation. Christ is being formed in you. You're conforming (coughs) to the image of Christ, and now you no longer conform to the world. And all that was a part of the stuff that you laid aside, you don't conform to that anymore. The world thinks this, you don't think that. The world does that, you don't do that. Not with a condemning separatist idea that we're better than that. No, we are sinners just like everybody else, but we have found grace in Christ by the mercies of God. He has saved you out of that to live in the fullness of what you can be. What a glorious day has come upon us. He says this is essentially the problem we're facing as a culture. We have forsaken the integration of what we believe with what we do. And then what we do kicks back and starts reshaping what we believe. And instead of our anchor in foundational doctrinal truth, thinking soberly as we ought to think about ourselves, what's happened is that we start doing stuff because the culture and the secularization of our mind leads us to assume this is okay. The kickback then starts coming back in and changes things. It, it, it's sort of like backwash in a, in a drink. You know, you you know, bottom, yeah, it's kind of nasty thought. We had our church celebration a few weeks ago, and they had that orange cotton candy. Did you see that mess? For those of you here, I mean, it was like orange cotton candy. And so all the kids out there are just going like, num, num, they're giving me chocolate and sugar and sending me home to mom and dad. This is an awesome church. You know, and the kids had just orange stuff all over their faces. It was nasty. And I saw one kid that had a bottle of water. Oh, yeah. And the, and the water in the bottle was orange. I mean, you would have thought it was like orange juice in there. It was so orange. And I just sort of went, I think I'm okay. You go ahead. I'm going to give me a fresh bottle. You don't need to share that one with me. But, but what happens in the Christian life, we start doing things that, that backwash into what we think, and then we start adjusting what we think and believe to what we want to do, and we end up in a mess. Paul says, don't do that. Professing Christian couples? What in the world makes them think that it's okay to live together, kind of try this thing out before we get married? Let's just go ahead and try this. I mean, the world is saying you should. Yeah, but Jesus says you shouldn't. Well, he didn't understand our times. Yeah, the eternal God doesn't understand your times. Whoops, how'd that get by me, God says. No, he knows. Don't do that. Why? Because he wants to deprive you of something? No, because he wants to protect you for something. Better than you could have imagined. Christian business people looking to try to make the deal are willing to compromise and and cut off around the edges things that have to do with integrity and, and authenticity of their faith and end up making the deal but losing their testimony as followers of Christ. And we we find ourselves with Christian students wanting to get to the school they want to go to and they're willing to do a little cheating here and there, and just a little bit of fudging here and there, and just a little bit of maybe not telling the entire truth about this and that and the other, and, and they get what they want, they think, but at what price? And you can just walk through decisions we make in our lives and put it in the context. Are we dealing with these things? Are we conforming to this world, 
are, are we putting aside being conformed to this world and being transformed by the renewing of our minds? Well, that's what God wants us to understand. When he changes our lives, we become like Jesus. We're being transformed into his image. And that includes us as worshiping beings and as moral and ethical beings and as thinking beings. Now, what's the implication of that? Well, when God renews our minds, not only do we do what we do because we believe, but we think like Jesus. We think like he does. That means that that this is a a transition that's very, very distinctive. To, To think as those who believe, to think Christianly, we have to have the mind of Christ. So as we have the mind of Christ, what does that look like? He says, well, verse 3, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought. Okay, now some of you inferiority complex people out there are going, well, I'll never do that. Never do that. And then the rest of you are kind of going like, what? I'm always right about myself. I'm fine. I'm fine. I got this down. He says, no, no. You think it's to have sober judgment. So wherever God thinks about you, that's where you're supposed to think. If you've got an inferiority complex, get over it because God thinks of you more highly than that. If you've got a huge ego, get over it. God doesn't give you that. He gives you the humble heart. And so you find with sober judgment, one translation calls it having a sane estimation of who you are. He said, that's how we're supposed to process. We're to have this sane estimation, the sober judgment, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to you. So in order to live a life in Christ that is thoroughly integrated and not fragmented, that is reflecting the image of Christ and what we do and what we believe, and yes, and even how we think, we are to put on and live out the mind of Christ. And so Philippians chapter 2, verse says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Let this mind being that, this attitude, this way of thinking, let that be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Transforming picture. In other words, as a new creature in Christ, you must think the way he thinks. And your thought life should be under the control of the Holy Spirit. And your mind should be the mind of Christ in all things. And you should be able to take every thought captive to obedience to Christ so that you understand how it functions for me as a follower of Jesus to live for his glory. This awesome. I mean, I love this stuff. This is so good. Some of you are kind of going like, oh, oh, get it. Uh, that's okay. Some of you, this may be just a way too much information on the introduction. Go back and pick up chapters 1 to 11. Focus in and see what you believe. <clears throat> and if those things are true, therefore, here's how you need to think as you become like Christ in all your behavior in all your character, in all the processing of information through your mind as you begin to work as a functional being in a secular world. Don't be conformed to this world. But by God's grace, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The way you think Christianly is going to reflect in the way you live practically. It's going to be awesome. So here's, here's just three quick takeaways for us. One, there's, there's eternal purposes to consider. How, how does this change things? Based on sound judgment, sane estimation of who I am in Christ, I need to have a reflective point called eternal purposes in my life that says, uh, not overestimating my own agenda, I place God's purposes above my own. That's, that's what my calling is. I'm, I'm not going to Elevate my positions, my opinions, my agendas above God's. I have eternal purposes, and I will not place mine 
above his. It's just not going to happen. It's not profitable. It's not something that makes sense. His purposes matter more than any ones that I have. Okay, so that's the starting point. I've got to have eternal purposes. Secondly, I need to establish the top priorities in my life. If I think well, uh, not trusting in my own understanding, I place his priorities above my own priorities. Okay, Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your steps. That's the picture here. That's the top priority to give him top billing. Uh, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all the rest of the stuff will be added to you. It'll, it'll be integrated together in the proper context if you give the priorities the right priority. So you have eternal purposes, you have top priorities, and then you have a strategic plan for how you live your life. It's not a matter of just getting up every morning and just sort of let it fly and see what happens. No, it's having a strategic plan and recognizing that I will not rely on my own insights or lack thereof, but I will place his plans and his designs above my own. Jeremiah 29, verses 11 and 13, he says, I know the plans I have for you. They're not for calamity. They're for a future and a hope. I've got a plan for you. Let me unfold that plan in your life. But in order to have that happen, urge you, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, which is that which is pleasing and acceptable in the sight of God. And don't don't conform anymore to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let this happen in you. Don't have a higher estimation of yourself so that you keep supplanting God's ideas with yours, but no, you step back and say, Lord Jesus, the mind of Christ And what I believe is going to shape what I do. And what I believe is going to be the wall of beliefs that is the the anchor point from which I give my life to causes and purposes and intentions that are worthy of the name that has saved me. That is what I'm called to do. I have to understand that I need to look at my life carefully. Uh, Someone once wrote that an unexamined life is not worth living. We need to see the Spirit of God examining our hearts to see if there's anything in us that is not consistent with the life of Christ in us. And then forsake that, put that aside, put on Christ, become Christ-like in all things. That's what he's calling us to do. And then, and only then, will we begin to live what we believe. This is a glorious gospel, folks. God does not want us to experience mundaneness in life but the magnificence of a high and holy calling that will be so fulfilling and so satisfying that if every day in just doing of the things that God's called us to do, there will be a sanctified beauty to it that will see our lives adorned in such a way that, as Isaiah says, the nations will come to the light of the rising of the brightness of the shining of the Lord in you. That's how we're supposed to be living. I like that Now, when we come to the table right now, when you take that bread and you take that cup, you're saying, this is the body of Christ broken for me. Me. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is for me. The incarnation, God did that. And we take that cup. This is the blood of Christ. The life of Christ in his blood shed for me to pay for my sin so that I can enter into what Horner just talked about for the last 35 minutes. This is for me. 
And so if you know Christ, deacons, elders, would you come? We're going to share this table with all who know Christ and who are looking forward to his coming. And we want all of you who know Jesus, whether you're a member of Providence or not, if you know Christ and you know that he is your Savior, we want you to come to this table. If you don't know Christ, uh, there's no indictment on you at all. It's just saying, I, I can't say that, honestly. I can't say this body of Christ broken for me, body of Christ shed for me, if you've never believed that yet. So it, it's just an opportunity for us to invite you to consider and examine where you are with Christ. And if you do know Christ, you come to the table. If you don't, no problem. Just when the tray comes by, just pass it on. Nobody's making any judgments about you because we've all been there. And so we want to be able to say, Lord, by the mercies of Christ, we receive this bread and we receive this cup. And so as we share this with you, uh, may our hearts be united together. That's why they call this Holy Communion. We're, we're together here. We're, we're lowly folks who have found life through the grace of a Savior who lovingly came after us when we needed him most. And so we're going to pray, give thanks for this bread and the cup, and Ross is going to give thanks for all of us this morning, and then these guys are going to bring it to you this morning, and you'll just be able to sit there, and as the tray comes, you take the bread and the cup, and they're both on the same tray, if you're not familiar with how we do it. So you'll probably need both hands at somehow or another to serve each other. So just take care of each other as the, as the tray comes by, and then we're going to share this for the glory of God. Ross, if you'll pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for transformation and for regeneration that only comes from you. It comes from your son through the cross. Thank you for his life and for his death and for his resurrection that regenerates us and transforms us into new beings and into new life. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.